So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 16. Hear now the word of God. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your kindness, love, and mercy that you have shown us in Christ, your living word. But we ask, O Lord, that as uh, we reflect upon your written word, that you would give unto us understanding, that you would give unto us clarity of thought, that you would remove the clouds of sin, that we might understand unto greater sanctification, that you would grant unto us your mercy, O Lord, that we would heed your commands, that we would also take to heart the promises of your gospel And that in the end, we would look unto Christ as the author and finisher of our faith and as the one through whom, by the power of the Spirit, you are sanctifying and conforming us more and more to the image of your Son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. We live in a period where we could say that uh, the world is devaluing Uh, the concept of language at perhaps an ever-alarming rate. Now, keep in mind, this isn't a rant that says that uh, things are worse off today than they ever were in the past. But nevertheless, uh, the whole idea of technology and social media is something that is changing the face of culture. Uh, And so, not only changing the face of culture, but in fact, I think changing the value of language You can put somebody in front of a screen, for example, and take a virtual tour of the Great Barrier Reef, but can you actually say that you have really and truly seen the Great Barrier Reef if you take a virtual tour? This is what I mean when I say that we see language at an alarming rate being devalued. I think the internet, on this particular example, if you were to take a virtual tour of the Great Barrier Reef, is devaluing the meaning of the word to see. Now, along these lines, I think we can say that the, the internet, for example, especially with, as it relates to social media, has devalued uh, the, the definition of what it means to be or to have a friend. It used to be that a friend is somebody that you know, uh, somebody that you meet with, say, on a regular basis, somebody that you talk to, and even, for example, share the joys and heartaches of life. Uh, It's perhaps a song that maybe some of us are familiar with, maybe some of our children even more familiar with, but, you know, Randy Newman's song, You've Got a Friend in Me, which is the titular song to uh, the the Toy Story cartoons, uh, says, you've got a friend in me, you've got troubles, I've got them too, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you, we stick together and see it through, because you've got a friend in me, you've got a friend in me. In other words, here Randy Newman sings essentially of how important it is to have friends because friends are the ones, ideally, best defined, not with a devalued meaning of the word friend, 
that somebody it's somebody who sticks with you through thick and thin, through the good times and through the bad times. In more technical language, it was Aristotle who defined friendship as two people uh, who love one another altruistically. In other words, they don't love each other for personal gain, but rather in order to benefit the other person. But now, for example, with the use of the term friend on social media, for example, we can have thousands of friends on social media, but there are people that we have never met and people that would never really probably be able to pick us up or pick us out of a lineup. In total contrast to this, in terms of how, say, the world these days is defining what a friend is, uh, what does Solomon have to say about the nature of a friend, and in particular, a godly and wise friend, in contrast to what we would say would be a foolish friend? And so what I want us to do this evening is what we want to do is look first at what he has to say about the foolish friend, and understand every time that I say the words foolish friend, I want you to think of friend in scare quotes, okay? Uh, Because essentially, if you put foolish friend in the same sentence, it's really going to be the type of friend that you would not want to have. But then secondly, we want to look at what Solomon has to say conversely about the godly friend. And so ultimately, what Solomon does here is he defines for us the true nature of what we can say of Christian friendship, and it's ultimately a friendship that naturally finds its culmination in the friendship that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's give some thought to this first to what we would call as the foolish friend, the foolish friend. I think we can say that in verses 16 through 20, this portion of chapter 17 arguably turns upon the concept of friendship. This is the topic that we want to see, therefore, what Solomon has to say about the foolish friend. And again, I put friend in quotes here because we want to consider what Solomon has to say about such a person. And when we take a look at what he has to say, this is no type of friend that we want to have. And so here Solomon, I think, gives three negative characteristics of the foolish friend. First, we can say that the foolish friend lacks sense. The foolish friend lacks sense. Verse 16, why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Now, I think fools, in this particular thought, uh, believe that everything is for sale. Anything and everything can be bought with a price. You can buy possessions, you can buy fame, influence, friends. All you have to do is shell out enough money. Yet evident from this proverb is that Solomon says that Money can't buy good sense. Or another way to put it, money can't buy you wisdom. Money cannot buy you wisdom. Remember, the setting of the book of Proverbs is God's covenant, which is ultimately informed by his word. And one of the things that the word of God says about the nature of wisdom and how you attain it, it's not by buying it, but rather wisdom is the pure gift of God. 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul says, We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Wisdom has to be taught by God. It has to be given. It cannot be bought. Or Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, and drink water. 
He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. God says, if you come to me, if you are humble, if you repent of your sin, if you ask of me, I will give unto you the riches of my wisdom and of my knowledge. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord go hand in hand. And the only one that can give us a new heart is God. And it's only that new heart that will give us the desire for the wisdom of God, a wisdom that comes to us only through Christ. Remember when Simon the magician in the book of Acts, chapter 8, tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter told him in verse 20 of chapter 8, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. We could say of Simon the magician that Proverbs seventeen sixteen fits him like a hand in the proverbial glove. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? How else does a foolish friend show a lack of sense? Well, Solomon says in verse 18, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. You see, a foolish friend lacks sense because he's going to be willing to assume the legal responsibility for another person's debt. He's willing to risk his future on the questionable character of a neighbor who most likely will not pay back his debt. In this case, the foolish friend essentially likes to make grand gestures, and he likes to try to impress people with the pretensions of wealth. And so he puts up uh, his pledge for someone of questionable character. They are all about appearances rather than about the true substantive nature of a heart that is in the grip of the grace of God. So the foolish friend, first and foremost, lacks sense. Second, we can note here about what Solomon says is that the foolish friend thrives on rebelling against God. Verse 19, whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. To put it simply and bluntly, there are some people that are quite literally hell-bent. They get great pleasure out of rebelling against God. They are so averse to authority that they look for any way that they can, conceivably in word, thought, or deed, to transgress the law of God. Think, for example, in the book of Esther of Haman the Agagite, a sworn enemy of the people of God, he was hell-bent on the destruction of the Jews. You know, I've encountered a little bit of this type of of personality. I can remember sitting at seminary, uh, and we were in the cafeteria, and as was our usual practice, we would eat lunch, and as we were eating lunch, we would talk theology and and talk about the latest things that we had heard in class. And, And I had this one friend who started uh, debating and claiming that he was essentially convinced of a heretical position. And there were a number of us who got really concerned. And so we started trying to, to, to persuade him that, no, this is a really bad idea. This is contrary to scripture. And a number of us got a bit exercised, not out of anger, but out of great concern. And then within moments, after, say, 20, 30 minutes, uh, our friend just laughed And he said, oh, calm down. I was just toying with you. I just wanted to see you get all worked up. And I told him, square out. I said, this is the last time I ever have a discussion with you like this again, because you just look like you are hell-bent on raising trouble, on getting people upset for no good reason whatsoever. I never had another doctrinal conversation with that individual again. 
Whoever loves transgression loves strife. They love, to put it colloquially, stirring up the pot just because it's fun to do so. The conflict-seeking friend, or so-called friend, builds his house high. He builds his house high. And thus Solomon says he has a high door, which is another way of saying he's not low, he's not humble, he's an arrogant person. When Esther, for example, invited Haman to a feast where she was going to confront him with his murderous treachery, Haman thought he was being honored. Esther chapter 5, verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Why? Because he said, hey, the queen has reached out personally to me to invite me to a banquet with the king. Of course this is something worthy of who I am. Of course this is fitting for my degree of dignity. And so he was joyful and glad of heart. He had a high door. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. He could not countenance Mordecai's lack of respect. Mordecai knew what kind of man he was and therefore deserving of no respect. But Mordecai, in Solomon's words in verse 19, latter half of it, he who makes his door high seeks destruction. He was an arrogant and proud man. He had a high door. He had a high door. Someone who is hell-bent on rebelling against God, therefore, dwells in a very high house. He tries to elevate his own importance over God's, which means that he'll elevate himself, not only God, but over everyone else that is around him. So a foolish friend lacks sense. Secondly, a foolish friend thrives on rebelling against God. Third, a foolish friend ultimately lives for the sheer pleasure of sin. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 20, a man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. You see, the person who's crooked in his heart, in his thinking, in, in the things that he desires, takes what is good, noble, and just, and he twists it, thus his crooked heart. And if he twists what is true, then this is why he never discovers what is good. He's always seeking that which is crooked. One of the things that we can use to try to illustrate this, and and, and this is in no way to be critical of anybody, because I myself am, am like this, I find that uh, I just, uh, in the morning when I get up, I have got to have orange juice. That's my coffee, if you will. If I don't have orange juice, I'm grouchy. You know, so my wife literally has like an extra gallon on hand. And then in case of that, she's got a frozen can in the freezer just as an emergency backup, right? All right. And in fact, when we go on trips, she'll say, I'm packing some portable orange juices for you, right? But I like a specific kind of orange juice. In other words, I like what I can call the industrial orange juice. It's the stuff that's been processed. If you give me a glass of fresh squeezed orange juice, I'll be like, okay, it's, it's okay. But it's got pulp, you know, which makes me think of bugs. And, you know, I just don't like bugs floating in my drink. And, and then it doesn't taste, it doesn't have the same smooth consistency of the processed stuff. 
My palate has been ruined for the real orange juice, and I take and like the processed stuff much better. Let me start to boil this down. I like the man-made stuff better than the stuff that God has created. I've got a better appetite for it than the real thing. How many things in life are we like that? We like the processed food better than the real thing. Now let me bring this home even further. How many of us, because of the twisted nature of our hearts at times when we struggle with sin, we like something that is sinful more so than what God has given to us as something good? How many people revel in sexual immorality rather than as it's supposed to be expressed and as God designed it within the confines of marriage? How many of us want to pilfer something because it's easier to swipe something than it is to have to work for something? We can see very quickly and easily how our desires and our wants can be twisted by sin. So much so that we will turn away from the thing that is good, the thing that God has given us, and desire that which is sinful and evil. Well, such is the nature of the foolish friend. He just lives for the sheer pleasure of sin. He twists what is true and therefore never discovers what is good. Notice how the crooked heart here in verse 20 conflicts with how Paul describes the godly and presumably wise Christian in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, you can almost imagine the foolish friend saying, why do you desire such things? Why are you always trying to be such a boy scout? So the foolish friend pursues sin. And ultimately, the foolish friend, therefore, is marked by deceit. And if he's marked by deceit, this means that calamity will fall upon him. In other words, God's judgment will fall upon him. So the foolish friend lacks sense. Secondly, he thrives on rebelling against God. And thirdly, he ultimately lives for the sheer pleasure of sin. Such is the nature uh, as the foolish friend. All right, so secondly, what, what does... Solomon have to say about the godly friend? Well, as we can well imagine, the godly friend is ideally and ultimately supposed to be the utter stark antithesis of the foolish friend. So for starters, we can take those three characteristics that Solomon sets forth of of the foolish friend, that he lacks sense, that he loves to rebel against God, and that he simply revels in the pleasures of sin, and we can contrast those with how the godly friend would act. If the fool lacks sense to buy and tries to buy wisdom, then the wise friend seeks God's wisdom through Christ and the power of the Spirit. In other words, the wise friend, the godly friend, is humble. He fears the Lord. And he recognizes that wisdom and salvation are the pure gift of God that come only through Christ. So the foolish friend lacks sense, lacks humility. The wise friend has the fear of the Lord in his heart. He has humility. 
Secondly, if the fool thrives on rebelling against God, then what does that say about the godly friend? The godly friend will live a life consecrated unto God, one devoted to obedience. He doesn't seek to sow the seeds of strife, but rather he seeks to sow the seeds of peace and unity. He lives a life of humility before the Lord. Above all else, we could say that the wise friend would be marked, therefore, by the love of God, a love for God and a love for neighbor. Third, we can say that if the fool lives for the pleasure of sin, then the wise friend lives to please God. The foolish friend seeks to please himself. The wise friend seeks to please the Lord. You know, one of the things that you can note, say, for example, in Psalm 51, which we sang just moments ago, is that when David confessed his sin, he was obviously confessing his sin that he committed against Bathsheba, that he committed against Uriah the Hittite. But when it finally came down to it, he wanted to recognize the ultimate person that he had sinned against. And he says in chapter 51, verse 4, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, David lived with a continual awareness that he was living in the presence of God. Well, the fool is just as much aware of this, but he wants to do everything that he can to rebel against God and to seek the pleasures of sin. But the wise friend will instead seek to find pleasure in God, not in anything else. He will live, as you've heard the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, continually aware that he dwells in the presence of God. So the godly friend seeks God's wisdom in Christ. The godly friend seeks to live a life consecrated to and devoted to obedience to God. The godly friend lives for the pleasure of God and for no one else. But we can also say about the godly friend that the godly friend is loved, as I, as, uh, is marked, as I said, by love, a love for God and others. Look at verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You see, unlike the foolish friend who ultimately only idolatrously loves himself, the godly friend loves at all times. This means that whether in good times or in bad, whether there's plenty or, or, or of money or not, whether there's plenty of food or blessing or poverty, famine, and adversity, the true friend will stick to you like glue. Think, for example, of David's friendship with Jonathan, a relationship that, if I had to guess, is one that David told Solomon about. So I can't help but think that here, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity, that Solomon would have been aware of his friendship with Jonathan. What, is, what do we read about this friendship in 1 Samuel 18? 1, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Remember how Aristotle talked about the true nature of friendship, that two people love each other altruistically, in other words, not for selfish gain, but for the sake of the other? That is a statement that really describes the nature of the friendship between uh, Jonathan and David. Jonathan loved David as his own soul. 
he cared for him as much or more than he did for himself. And in fact, when Saul, Jonathan's father, was sinning against David, he didn't allow his relationship with his father, the king, caused him to abandon David. First Samuel chapter 19, verse 4, and Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against uh, his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. We realize what kind of a risk Jonathan was taking there to stand with David against his father. If Saul was seeking to kill David, it stands to reason that Jonathan was taking his life into his own hands by confronting his father's sinful hatred of David. And even when David knew that he was in great peril, Jonathan didn't abandon him. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 3 and following, David says, But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And how does Jonathan respond to David? Whatever you say, I will do for you. I don't care how dangerous it is. I'll do it. I'll be there. And when Jonathan was slain in battle, David was so torn up about it that he wanted to show mercy to anyone left in Saul's house for the sake of his dear friend Jonathan. I think partly of what happens in in binding and bonding these two men together is that they faced danger and peril. You know, you've heard the phrase, the band of brothers that you acquire, say, for example, in combat. Uh, Journalist Sebastian Younger writes in his book, Tribe, He says, the only thing that makes battle psychologically tolerable is the brotherhood among soldiers. You need each other to get by. This is the type of intense experience that David and and Jonathan experienced together. And so it bound them together. But it wasn't just simply the bond of stress, but rather it was ultimately a bond of love, a bond of friendship between two men. It was a tremendous friendship, one that embodies these brief words when Solomon says, a friend loves at all times, at all times. Now Solomon contrasts the love of a godly friend with a brother in the latter half of the verse. He says there in verse 17, the latter half, and a brother is born for adversity. Now this is where we have to remember the observational character of Solomon's Proverbs. He's not stating an absolute black and white truth, but rather he's making an observation. In this case, he says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. In other words, you get your brothers or your sisters Because they've been given to you, you've been born into the family, they've been born into your family, you have the bond of family because God has put them there. They're your brother, they're your sister, because they have to be. They have that biological link. Whereas a friend chooses his friends. Jonathan chose to be a friend to David. In other words, even when... He faced the, 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 the obstacle of that blood relationship to his father. He rejected the blood relationship to his father. He confronted his father's sin. And instead, he was willing to side with David, even at the risk of his own life. 
So this means that a godly friend is not in any way a fair-weathered friend. They stick with you through thick and thin no matter what. We're looking a little bit ahead when I quote this verse, but in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That, I think, is the truth that what Solomon is trying to convey. A godly friend will stick closer to you than a brother. You've all heard the phrase, uh, blood is thicker than water, and you use that to characterize the close link of family. Well, Solomon's saying there's a bond that's even closer than that, and that's the bond of a close and godly friend. Of course, I think we should take note that when Solomon talks of the godly friend, we have to remember that Jesus, I think, is ultimately always in view when Solomon is giving forth wisdom, and that he ultimately has the fulfillment of God's wisdom in Christ. I want you to take everything that you have heard so far about the nature of the godly friend and listen carefully to what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, verses 12 and following. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What a stunning statement for Jesus to say that he was laying down his life, not for his servants, not for his subjects, not for his underlings, but for his friends. Jesus called the disciples his friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he calls all of us, therefore, his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Do you hear all of the themes that we've discussed? A godly friend does not sow strife. Jesus says, love one another. Solomon says a godly friend essentially is closer than a brother. Why? Because the godly friend chooses to be a friend. And what does Jesus say? You have not chosen me. I have chosen you. What does he say? Uh, What does Solomon say? A godly friend sticks to you through thick and thin. He says there in verse 17, he says, a friend loves at all times. Is that not ultimately and climactically true in Jesus Christ, who he has loved us even when we hated him? So much so that he's willing to lay down his life for us. So this is why we can say that Jesus is ultimately the purest manifestation of what a friend is supposed to be. And it's only through faith in Christ that we become, therefore, friends of God. James 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. God says that in Christ, you are my friends. 
and conversely that we are the friends of God. Only when God shines the light of his grace through his son by his spirit does he make us his friends. His friends, the friends of Jesus. Only he gives us a heart of humility. One zealous for obedience, fervent to love God. But not only does the person who is united to Christ love and obey God, but he also is a good friend to others. He loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. He loves his family. Uh, She loves her friends. She loves her family. She does not seek to sow seeds of discord, but rather unity, love, and peace, the means by which A godly friend can strengthen the bonds of friendship within the body of Christ. Such is the nature of a a true friend. So, beloved, when we think of friendship, godly friendship, we should ask ourselves whether we're allowing the world or the word of God to define the idea. The word friend has become such a shallow, meaningless term. But when we look to see What the Bible says about the nature of a friend, it gives us a lot of food for thought. We should ask ourselves, have we surrounded ourselves with foolish friends or godly friends? We should ask ourselves whether our friends are like Christ. And if they're like Christ, are they therefore helping us to be more like Christ or leading us away from Christ? In other words, do our friends make us want to be better Christians? We should ask ourselves, in the light of what Solomon says, are we being godly friends to those who are around us? But most importantly and chiefly, we should always ask the question, is Jesus our friend? The only way that he can be our friend is if we trust him by faith. And that, of course, has to be the gift of God. It is not a gift that we can buy. And the only way that we can be the friend of Jesus is if he gives us faith. The only way that we can be wise and receive the wisdom of Christ is if we come humbly to him in prayer and asking for that wisdom. Is Jesus our friend? And are we a Christ-like friend to others? Those are the questions that we should ultimately ask. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you indeed are our friend, that in Christ you have loved us as no one else ever has, and that your Son has deigned to call us his friends, not his servants, for servants do not know what the Master is doing, but rather you have called us your friends. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant unto us the ability to be the best of friends to you, that we would show you our friendship by our love, that we would be fervent to obey you, that we would come humbly into your presence, beseeching your wisdom, that we would live not for the pleasure of sin, but for the pleasure of your glory and of your will. Conversely, we pray, O Lord, that you would make us the best of friends to those who are around us, that we would be a spur to godliness, that we would encourage others unto righteousness and holiness, that we would point others to Christ, that we would bask in the glory of the friendship that we have in Christ, and in so doing, he would make us the best of friends to others, not as the world defines it, 
but as you have defined it in your Son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.